All right, let's do a little thought experiment. I want you guys to imagine uh, this kind of scenario. Imagine that God took this church, this body of believers, took us and put us in a courtroom And what he put on trial was not us, but he put on all of the things we worship, all of our idols. Now, if you remember ancient Israel, and if you even met anybody of a different religion, especially in other parts of the world, you'll realize that idol worship is a common part of the human experience throughout history. It is common for humans to carve up some kind of an image, whether it's wood or metal or something else, and worship it because it either represents some kind of being that they believe is real or they think that it actually is that being that they're worshiping. And a lot of times those beings have all sorts of specialties and blessings that, that, that at least the worshipers say will be bestowed upon the people that worship those various idols. So what I want us to imagine is what if God got our church in a courtroom and said, hey, I'm going to put... I'm going to put your idols on trial today. Now, obviously, it's not as obvious. We're Western. We're in a Western society. Most people in Western society don't have carved up images that we worship. But what are the things that we idolize? What are the things that we worship? What would be in the room with us? What would get put on the witness stand and put on trial that day if God took us and said, hey... What do you worship? I'm putting it on trial today. Now, here's what I know. Some of you probably are already pushing back. Christians in the room, you're going, I only worship God, Anthony. Like, how dare you accuse me of worshiping other things? And then maybe some of you in the room, you're, you're not even a Christian, which I'm thankful that you're here. And you're going, listen, Anthony, I'm not a worshiper. That's what you weird Christian people do. And I go, fair enough. But I want to argue that all humankind... All of us as humans, we're worshipers. Whether you believe it or not, whether you ascribe to to the fact that you're a worshiper or not. I'm going to read this quote. It's a bit of a longer quote. It's from this author, uh, David Foster Wallace. He's actually dead now, and uh, he he was not clearly a Christian, although as you read his writings and things, he kind of dabbled with Christianity and, and looked at it. But he has this famous speech called This is Water. It's a commencement speech that he did. I encourage you to go listen to it on YouTube at some, uh, at some point. But I'm going to read an ex- excerpt from that speech that how he sees that all of humanity are worshipers, whether we want to believe it or not. So it's a bit longer, but here we go. The words will be on the screen. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trends of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some involuble set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. What David Foster Wallace is trying to help us see as humanity in that speech is we are all worshipers. Whether you're purposely a worshiper or accidentally a worshiper, you're a worshiper. Unconsciously, there are things you're worshiping. And so going back to this little thought experiment where God brings us into a courtroom and everything that we worship, every idol that we worship, goes to the witness stand and is being put on trial, what would be in that courtroom with us? What would be put on trial with us. Maybe, maybe there would be an idol there in the shape uh, of your ideal body type that represents the sort of lover that you want to fulfill you. Maybe there would be an idol in the shape of, of a dollar sign that represents riches and, or even just you wanting to be rich. Maybe there, there will be an idol in the shape of like one of those stickers on the back of the vans where it's like the mom and the dad and the, a bunch of little kids with them. And that just kind of represents this family that you want and long for. Maybe, uh, maybe your idol is in the shape of a donkey or an elephant because you're just really into farming. And uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe they're in the shape of a donkey or an elephant really representing the sort of king you're sure you need and that this world needs. Maybe, maybe your idol is just like one of those kind of like ancient fans, like those palm fronds and just like one of those like kind of like ladies with grapes just feeding grapes. And, and, and this kind of just represents like pleasure and comfort that you make your whole life about. Maybe one of the idols is in the shape of like just clapping hands or like the clapping hand emoji representing the applause of people that you chase after in every way possible, even unhealthy ways. Maybe one's like a barbed wire fence just representing security in every way possible in your life that you want and find every way to get. Maybe it looks like a spider web, which this might sound a little bit intense, but maybe it looks like a spider web because so often the idol you worship is having control and power and safety in your relationships and in every part of your life. Maybe one looks like a makeup kit or a barbell representing your, your need to control your own beauty and chase after your own beauty. If God brought us into a courtroom and he put our idols on trial, what would be in the room? What are some of your idols? What would be there? This is a long thought experiment, but this is exactly what happens in the text in Isaiah that we're in today. In Isaiah chapter 41, God takes the people of Israel and he puts their idols on trial. 
If you don't know, we've been in this new series. We started it last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to week one because it kind of sets up the foundation for, for Isaiah 40 through 55, the series that we're in. We're calling Servant King. And Isaiah 40 through 55 is this one long poem, and it's these poems within poems, and it's this message that God is bringing to this beat down, exiled, controlled by other nations, people who are discouraged, who are not even sure if God is their God anymore. If he, they're not even sure if he's for them. And what we see in this long poem in, in chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah is this message of hope, and restoration, and how God himself is going to bring this hope and restoration to his people. And in Isaiah chapter 41, what he does is he puts their idols on trial. It's this court scene where God is going, okay, let's do it. Bring in your idols and have them face off versus me. And then God is talking to the people of Israel and he's talking to the idols themselves and he's showing how weak that they are. And so what we're going to be doing today as we go through Isaiah 41 and 42 and just as a reminder, we're going through larger passages of Scripture than we normally do. We're going through whole chapters at a time. So we're only going to be able to pull certain sections and verses out that kind of represent a lot of the themes in those chapters. So we won't be able to read every single verse in those chapters because we're going through such a large section of Scripture. But what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at this, these chapters, 41 and 42. And in 41... We're going to see this message that God is giving the people of Israel about their idols and how, they're weak for, compare, how they are weak compared to him. And we're going to ask ourselves, okay, if this is what God is doing with his people back then, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us to put our idols on trial today? And then Isaiah 42 has us turn and look at this servant that this series is named after, the servant king. It will have us for the first time look at this servant and look at the Lord himself, and we'll talk about what that means for us in, in relation to our idol worship. Okay, so that's where we're going. First, we'll look at 41 and look at this court scene between God and the idols, and then we'll look at 42 that talks about this servant and the Lord himself. Let me take a drink, and then we'll hop into it. If you have your Bibles... We're going to be in chapter 41. We're going to start in verse 21, kind of just like near the end of the passage. The words will be on the screen as well. And so we're hopping in right in the middle of this court, like this court scene. God is, it's kind of funny that all throughout Isaiah 41, God is acting as the lawyer. He's acting as the judge. He's acting as the prosecutor. He's doing all kinds of stuff in this poem to speak to these idols and speak to the people of Israel. And verse 21 is a place where he's like in the middle of talking to these idols and saying, okay, I'm putting you on trial. I'm going to give you a fair trial. Speak up for yourself. And see how he talks to them in verses 21 through 24. We'll read first. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us the former things, what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds. 
so we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. In other words, God is putting these idols on the trial, and he's acting like the prosecuting attorney, and he's saying, okay, Israel's been worshiping you guys for a while. Supposedly, you guys can do all sorts of things. Do them. Tell us about the past so we can know about our present. Tell us about the future, and so when we see that that future is fulfilled, that you really are God's. How about this? Do any kind of miracle. Do a bad miracle that freaks us out. Do a good miracle that we like. Do any kind of miracle so we could know that you really actually have power. And then God, as the prosecuting attorney, he doesn't hold back. He goes, but you, you can't do it. You can't do anything. Because you're nothing. And then look in verses 28 and 29 how God closes this court scene. He says this. I look, but there's no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. It's almost like he's talking to the jury now, which would be the people of Israel or us. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. In other words, as God is closing this, this trial against the idols, the things that the people of God were worshiping at that time, he's going, look, I'm, I'm giving your idols a fair trial. I'm, I'm trying to let them speak for themselves, but guess what? They can't because they're nothing. They can't speak to you. They're weak. They can't do anything. I actually like how the ESV puts verse 29. It says this, Behold, they are all a delusion. Your idols are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. If this was a television court drama and this was the speech, the ending speech to the jury, the closing arguments, we would be watching and we would all go, oh! God closes the court case on the idols that Israel is worshiping by saying, listen, they're all a delusion. They don't do anything. They're images of em they're empty wind. See, Israel is in this place of exile that we talked a good bit about last week, where another nation controls them, and they're scattered away from their land. They're there in exile because of their idol worship. So as God is talking about this beautiful, hopeful message of comfort and restoration that he himself is going to bring about, that we talked about from Isaiah 40 last week, he says, hey, one of the things we need to address right away is your idol worship. As, we, as I restore you as a people, we've got to address this idol worship of yours. And he says, your idols are weak and nothing, and that's what you need to hear, Israel. So, that's what God is saying to Israel when they're in the midst of exile. What is he saying to us? 
How do we hear these words today? We're not really in the same place in history as Israel is, even as the people of God, even though we are, have been grafted into the people of God because of Jesus. But how do we hear this from Isaiah? How do we hear these words in Isaiah today? I think it's this. I think we see this poem where God boldly And even in some funny ways, mockingly, puts their idols on trial. And I think what we do is, I think what we have to do is put our idols on trial before him. I think God wants to face our idols. I think God wants to say to us, go ahead, there's all kinds of things you worship, all kinds of things you love more than me. Put it on trial against me and see how weak that it is. I think that's what this passage could stir in us to go, okay, what are the things I worship? What are the things I treat like idols? Well, how am I pretty similar, actually, to the ancient Israelites without realizing it? What are those things that would come into the courtroom that day? And I think God would say to us, go ahead, put those versus me. Put those against me. Let's see who wins. Let's see who's better. I think that's kind of the, almost like the spiritual practice that we could do after reading Isaiah 41. And so here's what I want to do. I actually want to do that. I actually want to put two of the broad idols of our culture on trial this morning. I want to take a few minutes and just look at two idols that I think most of us worship in some way. Most of us have a hard time uh, not worshiping in some way. And I want to put them on trial before God. I want it to wake us up to the fact that we are worshiping those things, but then I also want us to see how those things are weak compared to God himself because that's what God is doing with the idols of Israel in Isaiah 41. And so there's all sorts of idols we all have. There's all sorts of idols we could all put on trial as we kind of talked about at the beginning of this sermon. But there's two in particular that I just want to kind of do this spiritual practice of putting our idols on trial before God and just examine how they hold up. Okay, so this first idol, this first idol that I want to bring up is the idol of autonomy. The idol of autonomy. Autonomy is the ability to self-govern, okay? So for us, autonomy is basically means the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. And I think autonomy is something that a lot of us in this culture chase after and worship. We look to have lives that are full of autonomy and complete autonomy. Right? We, we look for jobs where we can do whatever we want. We want lives that are directed completely by us and nothing else. When it comes to our morality and ethics, we want to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Often, even if an outside force is telling us what is right and wrong, unless they agree with our thoughts and our gut feelings, it bothers us immensely. I think that shows how much we worship this idol of autonomy. Some of us, uh, maybe I'm speaking for myself here a little too much, some of, some of us get irritated the second someone imposes on our autonomy in any way. There's just this irritation that comes up anytime someone imposes it on it in any way. I think that shows, I think that's a symptom 
that's showing the, our worship of the idol of autonomy. And so a lot of us in the room, we are building lives where we can have the most autonomy possible. Now, I'm going to say this right away. Wanting levels of autonomy in your life, it's not always a bad thing. And so right now, don't hear, don't hear me saying autonomy is always bad. No one should have autonomy. But hear me say this, it's bad when we worship it like we should only worship God. That's when it becomes a bad thing. And I think many of us worship autonomy that way. I would even argue that so much of so many of us, because of the culture we're growing up in, the society that we're growing up in, we've been trained from birth to worship this idol of autonomy. And often, another symptom that shows that we're worshiping this idol of autonomy, often when that autonomy that we think we have is challenged, we think we're being harmed even when we're not being harmed. I think God, if you put a, a, the idol of autonomy on trial, I think he would say that is a weak idol that does all sorts of bad things to you anyways. I think he tells us if you're always fighting for freedom and control, soon you're going to become a control freak, easily irritated, angered at anything or anyone that makes your sense of autonomy feel insecure. Autonomy as a God makes it so that you only find yourself in communities and friendships or relationships in general that serve you, that worship you, that help you keep your autonomy, which often, in my opinion, kills any sort of healthy, whole relationships that you can have and should have. When you worship autonomy, it makes it so your morality and your ethics are far more based on you and the culture that you're in and the people that shaped you rather than what are true ethics of love and justice in the world. Besides all that, when you as a human are really worshiping this idol of autonomy and you think you have true autonomy and you fight for this true autonomy, it really is a delusion. You can't keep yourself from sickness. If you think you can, come live with me for a month. You can't control the world around you. As much as you think you can, you can't. You can't control the people around you. You can't keep yourself from death. When we worship the idol of autonomy, it's almost like the idol continues to whisper to us, you're just like God, so keep worshiping Keep fighting for me. You're just like him now. I think God would put the idol of autonomy on trial today, and he would say things like this. Only he holds all the freedom. Only he can give you true freedom. Only he can save you from death. Only he is sovereign, and the more you resist his sovereignty, the more you live in delusion. Autonomy as a God would not be able to stand trial against the one true God, no matter how good you think it is. Wake up to how you worship that idol. Okay, the second idol. Again, just a broad idol that I think a lot of us worship. The second idol I, uh, that I want to look at, you could say I think it's a part of the very fiber 
the founding of America itself. Let me read a line or two from the Declaration of Independence, or you might know it uh, from Hamilton. And it's actually from a historical document, if you didn't know that, not just lyrics in a song. But this is what it says. We hold these truths to, I almost want to sing it, we hold these truths to be (laughs) uh, self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, again, to be clear, I think those are good things. Don't mishear me and be like, Anthony's really against, like, good stuff. (laughs) Like, that's not it. I just want to argue that I think the pursuit of happiness in particular for our society has become more than a pursuit. It has become the driving force of our lives. I think a lot of us worship the idol of pleasure and happiness. And I think a lot of what we do, a lot of how we live life, a lot of how we determine what to do is really in worship of this idol of pleasure and happiness. I think we worship it, just like the ancient Israelites worshiped all kinds of other idols. Again, to be clear, happiness and pleasure are not bad things. I think sometimes in the church we go, those are bad things. No, they're very good things and very good gifts from God. But when happiness and pleasure sit on the throne of our hearts in the place that only God should sit, then we have a problem. Then we have idol worship. Here's how I know we worship the idol of pleasure and happiness. A lot of the things that we struggle with as a society are happiness, pleasure things. We overeat because food tastes good. We overspend in our culture because buying stuff feels good. We, we sexualize and romanticize just about everything because sex and romance feels good. We move on from relationships that don't bring us instantaneous joy anymore, even if it would be good for us to stay in them. We use our phones and our screens endlessly because we're chasing this dopamine hit, this chemical of happiness that fires off in our brain when we use our screens endlessly. As a pastor, one way I notice that we worship the idol of pleasure and happiness is this. It's a lot easier for me as a pastor to convince someone that something is not a sin than to convince someone that something is a sin, especially when it's connected to pleasure or happiness. I could go on and on about the behaviors and symptoms that show that we worship the idol of pleasure and happiness. And I want to, again, I want to be clear here. Enjoying things in this world, being happy, finding things that make you happy is not wrong. In fact, some of you in the room need to go find things that make you happy so that you can understand the goodness of God better. Some of you get too excited, like, yes, don't be happy ever. Like, I've even read that. I read a preaching book one time. It was like, don't ever make jokes or you're a sinner. Like, Jesus cried all the time. I'm just like, what? Sorry, baggage. Um, So keep pursuing happiness. That's okay. What I want to argue, though, is we do more than pursue it. We worship it. 
We put it in the place that only God should be. We worship pleasure and happiness, and anything that stops us from that or keeps us from it, that is Satan to us. That is evil to us. And I think God would put pleasure and happiness on trial before us and say this. Who's the one that made food taste good? Me. Who's the the one that made the world full of fun and adventure? Me. Who's the one that made the chemicals in your brain that help you to experience pleasure? Me. Food without me doesn't taste good. This world without me doesn't even exist. Happiness does not even exist without me. Every time you feel happiness, you should know it's me, your loving creator who smiles when you smile. But when you worship the gift instead of the giver, instead of the creator, you become a hollow person. You become just as hollow as these idols you worship. You miss out on your true human purpose in flourishing. I think that's what God might say to us as he put the idol of happiness and pleasure on on trial. And so church, wake up. Wake up to your idolatry of happiness and pleasure. It's causing you to love all sorts of things far more than you should. And it becomes empty and hollow anyways. Have you ever noticed that with things that make you happy? You almost need more of that thing to get the same happiness high that you once had with those things. Just hang out with kids if you don't believe me, right? I can play download too slow with my daughter for like an hour straight. I have no desire to play that game ever. It doesn't make me happy, but it did once. There's actually this great book out right now called Dopamine Nation where it talks about this happiness chemical in our brains, how we're all just chasing it and it gets worse and worse and worse in how we chase it. It becomes empty and hollow the more you chase it. God wants to take those two idols and all sorts of other idols and put them on trial before us today and say, look, they are weak compared to them. I think he also wants to wake us up to our idol worship. Some of us need to be woken up to it. Some of us are too awake to our idol worship and we're walking around with too big of a burden forgetting Jesus' easy yoke. But a lot of us are not awake enough to our idol worship. And I think God would put our idols on trial and he would say, please, look at them, see how weak they are, and instead, look at me and see how majestic and beautiful I am. Don't do what verse 7 says to your idols. I love this verse. I'm just reading it because I like it. He's, he's in this scene. I love when God is like mocking because you're like, okay, this is holy mocking. All right, I love it. I can't do it, but he can. And he said in the middle of the verse, or near the end of the verse actually, he says... He's talking about how these guys build and make these idols. And he says, one idol maker says of the welding, it's good. It's good to go. It's good to worship. And the other nails the idol down so it will not topple. I love that picture. God's like, look, one of your guys is like, this is one of the best ones I made. Look how intricate it is. Meanwhile, his assistant is nailing it down so it doesn't fall over. God in the Bible loves to pit himself against the idols. He can stand on his own. Your idols cannot. 
Don't be the sort of person that nails your idols down so they keep standing when they can't stand on their own. So, that's Isaiah 41. After all this idol talk, and when we get to Isaiah 42, there's this really interesting shift and contrast in the poem that's being made between these idols and this servant that we've mentioned and God himself. So, so far in the poem, God has been saying, wake up to your idols, see their weakness. But now he's going to shift and he's going to say, look at something else instead. I like how the ESV puts verse 1. So I'm going to read that first. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Now, this series, it's called Servant King, and we're calling that. We're calling it that because all throughout the chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah, of this grand poem, there are these other poems about this servant king who is going to be the one that brings about this restoration and justice and peace and comfort that God says he's going to bring to his people. And and just a spoiler alert, that servant king is Jesus, okay? I could have been really crafty and waited till week six and be like, that's Jesus, by the way, but I don't want to do that, okay? This servant king is Jesus. God, to the people of God, to the Israelites in Isaiah's time, was cluing the people of Israel in during the time of their exile that he was going to send his chosen one and he was the one that was going to bring about the world's restoration and forgiveness and comfort and justice. And last week, we actually saw how, how God said he himself would arrive to bring that comfort. What we have seen because of how the rest of the story of the Bible goes, that servant is how God would arrive on earth. And we know on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, God's servant was his son, Jesus. And so here's what's interesting about the idol worship that God is so heavily addressing in Isaiah 41. God isn't just saying, stop it, right? Like, God isn't just saying, stop it, you guys, I'm back, right? Like, I let you do this for a while, you're in exile, just stop it, right? He's not doing that. God is actually saying, okay, look at them, see how weak they are, but now look at me. He's actually saying, switch your worship from them, switch your affections towards them, and put your affections on me instead. See how much more glorious I am? See how much better I am? See how much more loving I am? See how I can do for you what you think those idols can do for you? And so what he wants the people of God to do and us to do today is to look at his servant, which we know is Jesus, and to look at himself and see how much more worthy of worship he is. God is trying to help our affections get to the place they're supposed to be. He's not just saying, stop it. He's saying, look over here. Look over here instead. Let me read verses 1 through 4 that describe this servant, which we know is describing Jesus. 42. Here is my servant. Look at my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Look at all the beautiful ways the servant, Jesus, is described. He's the chosen one. He's the one that's going to restore everything. He's the one that's been chosen with this task to fix the world. He's filled with the Spirit. He's someone that can actually bring justice to every nation on the planet. Don't we want that? Don't we yearn for that? Only Jesus can do it. He's not loud and boisterous like many powerful demagogues trying to assert their power. But he's so gentle He doesn't even ever accidentally blow out a candle. You ever accidentally blow out a candle? I think every time I'm around a candle, I accidentally blow out a candle. Jesus doesn't. He's so gentle that when he's like wading in the waters and there's these reeds and some of them are kind of bent and about to break, when he bumps into them, they don't break. They don't break off and fall into the water. That's how gentle He is. Church, I want us to know, this is the second time in two weeks uh, in this poem that we're in that, that we see that a key and core part of God's character is his gentleness. How many of you think God is gentle and kind? How many of you think of him like that? I think too many of us have a picture of a violent and mean God. The only problem with that is that's not who he is. He's gentle and kind. Jesus, the servant, he will persevere to get his chosen one work done, and he won't stop till it's done because he's faithful to his creation. And the people to the ends of the earth, islands is shorthand for the ends of the earth when you see it in this poem, will put their hope in his teaching. He's not a king just for one group of people. He's a king for every group of people. And this is what Isaiah said the servant would be like. And he says, look at that servant, and we know that servant to be Jesus. And that is exactly who Jesus showed himself to be, and that's exactly who Jesus is right now. The poem goes on to talk about the greatness of God himself. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. I know we're going a little bit long, but this is just beautiful for us. We need to look at God. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness." I am the Lord that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all that who live in them. Again, what the poem has been trying to do in this section of the poem is wake, up, wake us up to the idols we worship, 
See how weak they are and see how instead how majestic and beautiful and powerful and strong and good and loving God is. God's not just saying stop it to us. He's not just saying stop worshiping the idols. He's just saying put your affections in the right thing. He wants to help you see what you were made to love. He wants to help you see what you were made to worship, which is himself. And it's good for him to do that. Because not only did he literally make us to be in a relationship with him, but he is the most glorious being in all of the universe. And so him turning our faces to him, he's not a megalomaniac. He's doing what is good. He's doing what is loving. He's the only being in the universe that can be righteously jealous. You don't know I have before. No, you haven't. Only God can. So wake up to your idols. See how weak they are. Look at them. Look at them and see how weak they are, but then see how much stronger and powerful God is. The way out of our idol worship is not saying stop it. It's really putting those same affections that you have for your idols in the one person that is worthy of those affections. You ever have a friend who's dating someone and you just know they shouldn't. You ever have that? They're just dating. You're just like, man, this person is just so bad for you. And like every way, you're like, gosh, they also, they got to go to therapy for a bit. Like, you, like, just like you got, you ever have a friend like that? And then meanwhile, have you ever been in this situation where you're like, man, this person's really bad for you. And then you're like, but then there's this other person in our small group, in our friend group, who's just like perfect for them. Like they're just a great match. This would, they would be great together. They, they should date one another. And then what's funny is when you're the friend that comes along and says, hey, that person's a psychopath. Like you shouldn't date them anymore. Bad things will come. You look like the bad guy. And maybe it's because you called their girlfriend or boyfriend a psychopath. But still... You look like the bad person, but I think some of you can with me relate that years later you go, I was right. I was right. He should have started dating this other, Rebecca. I I don't know if there's any Rebecca's here. I'm sorry. But he, like, I think that's kind of what God is doing with us and our idols. He's going, don't date your idols. Date me instead. The only thing is God actually is our soulmate. Like, he is who our souls were created to be knit to. So when God is doing it, it is the most supremely good and loving act possible for us. He's saying, stop Stop spending your time and your affections and your worship on weak things that are bad for you. And instead, put your affections on me. On the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And only when our affections are on him, only when our love for him grows, will our idols begin to look like empty wind or things that need to be nailed up so they don't fall over. And what's beautiful is God, to stir our affections, he doesn't just again say, just stir your affection. God says, I'm going to show you my affection for you in history in all sorts of ways, so that your affections could be stirred. He shows us his pursuit of us by becoming the servant 
in the flesh with the name of Jesus. He's a God wooing us and pursuing us and loving us. He takes on flesh to do it. He shows us his sacrificial love of us by pouring his blood out on the cross. And he's pouring it out for our idol worship. He's pouring it out to nullify the brokenness in our relationship with him because of our idol worship that's led to all sorts of sin. He has a sacrificial love for us. He shows us his extravagant love for us by giving us the resurrection that he himself has. He's generous with life. Church, turn your face to that beautiful and majestic God. He's far better than our idols. I promise you. Church, may we wake up to the idols we worship, and may we turn our face to the one, the only one, who is worthy of all worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. God, thank you for being a God who wakes us up to our idol worship. I think in, like, God, honestly, I'm like resistant to that message. And I think it's because of my idols of autonomy and thinking I know what's best and thinking I know more than you, God. And so forgive me for that, God. But thank you that you would be merciful enough to wake us up. Help us see how we're worshiping all sorts of idols. God, I pray that a true repentance happens in us this morning, that we don't just feel guilt-ridden because of all the idols that we worship, but that we would just see their weakness, that there would be a distaste in our mouths spiritually for our idols, and that we would turn to you and see how much more beautiful and good and kind and powerful and strong you are. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you do something in us. Like, we need you to help us see these things. We need your work in our hearts to help us to worship you, to have affection for you. So God, help us to place our affections rightly. And every time we don't place our affections rightly, may we not give in to guilt and shame, but give in to the righteousness that your Son has provided through the cross. And turn to you every time and run to your arms every time and know that you, it is safe to run to you every time. And that's the good news, the gospel. So God, we love you and we need you. Amen.